As you prepare to look at your pew Bibles on page 1008, we will be reading Hebrews 11:35b to chapter 12, verse 3. As we do so, there are four moments that I want to draw your attention to, and notice how the sequence follows from some as the one word that is of, to draw our attention to, then others, then us, and then the climax of the passage that focuses on Jesus. So let's read together. Hebrews 11:35b to 12:3. Women received back their dead from resurrection. Now, 11b. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn into two, they were killed with a sword. They went on in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. We continue on, though, today in our sermon series, A Steady On, Finding Strength uh, in the Book of Hebrews, and looking at what the Lord would say to our hearts uh, as we study Hebrews about how we can persevere uh, in faithfulness. Last week's sermon, if you were here for it, was titled, Faith for Obedience, Faith for Victory. And a special focus of last week's sermon uh, was the good news that not all of God's reward, not all of the things that he has stored up for us, his resurrection power, waits for us until the last day. We don't have to wait until we've died and, and uh, the future resurrection to experience God's power. The last day reward of faith is given to us even here and now as a deposit through the power of the Holy Spirit. So last week's text we looked at... Um, uh, a few verses back in chapter 11, but let me draw your attention uh, to verse 33, the verses that come right before the text we're going to be looking at today. 
But look at uh, what happened through faith. Thinking of the victory of God, who through faith conquered kingdoms, verse 33, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. And then 35a, the first half of it, women received back their dead by resurrection. So we looked at last week about all the ways that God in the days of old had worked his power. And through faith, the saints of old had accessed this power of God for victory in their lives. But then you get to 35b, which we read, on through the remainder of chapter 11 and into 12, 1 through 3, and things take a decidedly uh, marked different approach. I've titled today's sermon, Faith for Defeat, because we experience or we see in the text those that have not, through faith, have conquered and triumphed, but through faith have been conquered and had have people triumph over them. Defeat and reproach is an inevitable part of life, especially the Christian life. There's no way to live the Christian life without experiencing the defeat that marked Jesus' life. Sometimes, though, I think that we here, North American Christians, have an overly rosy vision of God's plan for our lives. Perhaps when you've been sharing the gospel or you've had the gospel shared with you, you've said or you've heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. So as you're detailing out the, uh, the, the plan of salvation, you begin with God's love uh, for the person, or that was how you came to understand it. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's all very true, but I once saw a, a famous painting called The Last Prayer, or The Final Prayer of the Martyrs, put together with that statement, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> so, you know, it doesn't always quite work out in the way that it's implied that God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our lives. Sometimes God doesn't shut the mouths of lions, as he says in verse 33. Sometimes we're fed to the lions. Some of you may be in a difficult spot this morning. Maybe you're being fed to the lions in your life. You've pressed forward in optimistic hope against all odds, just like we discussed last week. You've taken a stand for Jesus. You've had the faith to believe that God was able and willing to vindicate you, to step in and do a miracle on your behalf, just like you've seen him do in the past, but it hasn't happened this time. God hasn't delivered you from the mouths of the lions. And you've got a strong sense that it's not going to happen this time. Perhaps you, some of you have put your all into your marriage, and you have been as obedient to God as you know how to be. And you have tried and you've prayed earnestly. You've sought the Lord genuinely in faith and it just isn't coming together and it's not going to. Perhaps as parents, you have pled with God, prayed with God. You have tried to be everything that you're supposed to be in sincere, honest effort to be what you should be as a parent. And it's just not producing fruit in the lives of your children. Maybe it's with your job and you have felt the pressure to compromise at work, but in faith you've stepped up and you've done what's obedient and right and true. But rather than it leading to your vindication at work, it's led to your dismissal at work. What then? What happens when we take a step of faith and it feels like 
we've been hung out to dry. When we've done what God has called us to do, we have stepped out in as genuine a faith as we possess. We've done what God has called us to do, and it feels like we've been hung out to dry. The disgrace of defeat is inevitably coming in our lives, whether we like it or not. Not all the time, not every time. God does vindicate us. We just saw that last week in, in the verses we looked at last week. But there's no way to get through this life without experiencing some measure of defeat. So how do we navigate defeat? How do we handle it when our best, most sincere, most godly efforts are not rewarded by God with success? Now, I should be clear here that our passage has in mind the kind of defeat that comes because of our faith not in spite of it, not, not, the, not the kind of defeat that comes because we just, we just had a rotten luck in a rotten world, car accidents and sicknesses, right? But, but where we've done what God wanted us to do, we've taken a stand for God, we've done the hard thing of obedience in faith, and it just hasn't worked out. How do we keep moving forward in hope when all hope of victory is gone? What's your plan when God doesn't respond to your genuine faith with vindicating victory? That's the question before us this morning. That's what the people that we've just read about had to wrestle with. It's what the original audience who was listening to this pastor preach this sermon to them through Hebrews has to wrestle with the possibility of. Let's see what the author has to say in Hebrews 11:35b through 12:3 about this question. The first part of our sermon, we're going to uh, look through chapter 11 to see how the author frames up uh, the issue. And then in 12:1 through 3, we're going to look at three practical steps that we can take if we're in, we find ourselves in that spot. So let's dig into our text, uh, looking here at 11:35b. So 35a is part of the victory part of Hebrews chapter 11, right? It's part of the conquering kingdoms and shutting the mouths of lions and women receiving back their dead by resurrection. But then you get to 35b, and it takes a pretty stark turn. Women receive back their dead by resurrection, yay! And then, without any transition, we get to 35b, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Unless we think that that was just temporary and then they were vindicated. No, they were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. The author here is recounting many of the persecutions that had gone before, things that can be seen throughout the Old Testament. So it wasn't the case that every Old Testament saint had a victorious life. There were many Old Testament saints whose lives ended in misery and defeat. As how the world would con consider a misery and defeat. What's recounted in these verses then is not just rotten luck, not just unfortunate circumstances of a broken world. Note that the unifying theme in the situation here 
that is list, the situations that are listed is mockery. The aim of the persecution, the violence, and the mockery recounted in these verses was to bring dishonor and reproach upon those who were loyal to God because they were loyal to God. In other words, they were being, they were being signaled out and targeted in many respects because of their loyalty to God. So here in this passage, faith doesn't lead to overcoming the oppressor, doesn't lead to victory over the wrongdoer, does not lead to quenching the flames of persecution or putting the wicked to flight. It leads to death and dishonor and defeat. Sometimes, the scriptures tell us here, the righteous do not triumph. Sometimes they are crushed by the wheel of unjust oppression. If last week's sermon, if you were here for it, I talked about uh, eschatology and if last week's sermon was a caution against underrealized eschatology, then this week's sermon is a caution against overrealized eschatology. If you have no idea what either of those eschatologies are, then you have to go back and listen to the sermon last week. Some of God's resurrection last day power has indeed broken into the present. That's the good news. But not all of it. We live in the in-between, between victory and defeat. We experience both of these realities in our lives, just like the saints of old. God in his grace will often step in and deliver us. And I pray you've had experiences like that in your life where you've stepped out in obedience and faith and God has stepped in and vindicated your obedience and your faith and brought about a deliverance in that circumstance. But sometimes he doesn't do that. There are times when we've been faithful to him like the saints of old. We, we, we stand by his word. We persevere in obedience. And he doesn't step in and deliver us. Indeed, this is the situation that the uh, original audience of Hebrews is facing. They're being persecuted for their faith. And the author is reminding them that God can step in. He can vindicate them. He can deliver them, just like he talked about in the earlier chapters of earlier verses of chapter 11. But he might not. It might be the case that many of them will be martyred for their faith and face unjust persecution. The same in our situation, even today. And indeed, in verses 39 and 40, the author states that though we are commended by God for our faith, just like the saints of old, we will not, in this life, receive the fullness of what has been promised. What has been promised to the saints of old and what's been promised to us will come true for us, all of us, at the same time. But that time has not come yet. That day that we look for with ultimate hope is the great day of resurrection. So again, back to our question, how do we move forward when we've done everything we're supposed to do, everything God expects of us, when our faith has been sincere, our obedience has been genuine, we've done what we're supposed to do, and it still all comes crashing to the ground? The author begins to answer that question then in 12 one through three, giving us three steps to take, not steps, listen, not steps to turn the situation around, not steps to save your marriage after all, not steps to get your kids to behave and become what they're supposed to be, not steps to salvage your job. Those are not, these are not steps for that. 
These are steps for persevering in the midst of a situation that's going down in flames. When the marriage fails, when the kids go off the rails, when you lose your job and they can't be gotten back, then what do we do? Here are the steps that we're to take. The author gives us in 12, uh, 1. The first step, throw off non-essential weight. So therefore, the author says in 12.1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. That's the first thing, to lay aside every weight, the non-essential weight. The imagery here is that of a, of a runner who is weighed down by things they don't need to be weighed down by, and we throw those things off. The imagery is also perhaps that of a ship that is trying to make headway in a storm and the ship is beginning to list in the waters and perhaps it's going to sink. And so in those days, uh, captains, if it got that serious, would throw their, their tackle, their, their, uh, their cargo overboard to lighten the ship to get it back up so that it could survive. Acts 27 recounts a story where the Apostle Paul has been arrested. He's being taken to Rome for trial. He's in a ship and the ship is caught in a hurricane. It's beginning to sink. And when it becomes desperate, the, captain's, the captain begins to have the sailors throw the cargo of the ship, it was a merchant ship, to throw the cargo of the ship overboard to try to save the ship. So we need to throw aside all the non-essential weight when things get critical. But you might say, why bother tossing the tackle if you and the tackle are just going to sink anyway? That's a legitimate question, but it misses the point. Because the ultimate goal is not to keep our ship afloat but to keep our faith afloat. That's what we're striving to do, right? When the marriage is failing, we're not tossing aside things that are weighing us down to save the marriage. We're trying to save our faith in the midst of a failing marriage. We're trying to save our faith in the midst of the parenting crisis. We're trying to save our faith in the midst of the job crisis or the health crisis. Maybe, maybe God's not going to step in and deliver us from the circumstances, but we need to hang on to our faith. So in order to save our faith, we throw off the non-essential weight. The goal was to maintain your faith and to keep moving forward in obedience even though you can no longer see God's victory. To stay faithful even when you are being eaten by the lions. Maintaining faith in the midst of victory is easy enough, but maintaining faith in the midst of defeat, that's the real challenge. When we are suffering defeat, when things are going poorly, that is when we need to be very thoughtful about the things that come between us and our faith. There are for each of us things in our lives that uh, are not inherently sinful, yet these things can deaden our spiritual senses. They can weigh us down. They can cause us to lose sight of the goal. Each of us, of course, is unique, and there may be things in my life uh, that I can think of that qualify as this. There might be things in your life that are different than what's in my life, vice versa. But don't think here that we're only talking about the moral equivalent of junk food, right? Like we're, like we're just thinking about what weighs us down, and then we think of like, you know, like all the unnecessary things like binge-watching Netflix, you know, or too much time on Facebook, or too much time watching soccer. Pastor Johnny is insulted right now that I've compared soccer to binge-watching Netflix, right? But it's not just the fluff in our life. It's not just the fluff in our life that I think the author has in mind that we need to cast aside. It doesn't take a ton of discernment to see some of those things unnecessary way. I think the author has in mind not just the junk food of life, but also the good things of life that can make it hard for us to maintain the vibrancy of our faith. 
When the ship is sinking and the captain is pitching the cargo, it's not because the cargo is a bad thing, because the cargo is just kind of fluffy. Indeed, it's a good thing. But in a crisis, every unnecessary thing goes overboard. Now, no doubt there are many things in your life that are fine and good for you on a good day. But when the ship of your faith is in danger of sinking, you may need to set those good things aside so you can focus on what is absolutely essential. All throughout the Scripture, uh, Old Testament, and then especially you see in, uh, in force in the New Testament, uh, but the idea of fasting is uh, presented as something that we're to do. And here we're taking something, food, that God has made that's to be received with gratitude, that's thankful, that is indeed in many ways a necessary thing for our human life, right? And we're setting that aside for a season. That's what the idea of fasting is, right? So that we can, we can set aside something important, something good, so that we can focus in on God's activity in our life and our faith. The Apostle Paul has the same sort of logic that he uses with marital intimacy in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, talking about setting aside marital intimacy for a season so that we can engage in prayer. Food and marital intimacy are not bad. They are, in fact, very good things that God has made that we're to receive with gratitude. So they're good things. But there are times of struggle or times of seeking or times of crisis when it is wise to set aside the good things of life so that we can focus our attention on the things of God. So if you find yourself in a storm that is seemingly not going to be abated, that God may not step in and deliver you from, if your faith is in crisis, if so, do you have any non-essentials, not just the fluff, but even the good things, non-essentials in your life that you need to set aside so that you can focus on your faith? Perhaps things that are the moral equivalent of junk food or maybe even things that are inherently good. Are your possessions weighing you down? Maybe it's time to give some of them away. Is your job weighing you down? Maybe it's time to work less hours. Are your entertainment choices weighing you down? Maybe it's time to step away for a season. Do you have some relationships that in and of themselves might be good things or productive things or maybe even avenues for ministry, but right now they're just weighing you down? Maybe it's time to cut some ties. If you are facing the challenge of defeat, then lay aside the distractions, narrow your gaze, and refocus your thoughts on the things that matter most. So that's the first thing. Get rid of the, the unnecessary weight. Second thing, the author says right on the heels of that, we're to lay aside the unnecessary weight, but we're also to lay aside the sin which clings so closely. So the second step, if you find yourself in a crisis, a faith crisis, Lay aside the unnecessary weight, but also, secondly, to repent of sin. It's pretty straightforward. Some things in our lives are just outright sins. We can't dress them up like junk food. We can't say that they're just good things that have become a distraction. These are things that are just plain wrong under any circumstance. And there's no dancing around this issue here at this point. We can't hold our sin and our struggling faith at the same time. Those are moving in opposite directions. If you're going through a hard time with your faith, perhaps barely hanging on in the face of trials and defeat, then now is not the time to coddle your sin. Gave us a quote last week from St. Augustine. 
Just to tell you, this past year I read Augustine's City of God, which is like an 800-page book. So I have a lot of Augustine quotes stored up. So just be warned. But Augustine here, he's got a, um, a quote about uh, repentance and sin. He's just always so insightful about these things. He says this, a man shall rule over his sin when he does not prefer it to himself and defend it, but subjects it by repentance. Now listen to this. Otherwise, he that becomes a protector of his sin shall surely become its prisoner. If we set about to protect our sin, to kind of keep it safe so that we can coddle it, it eventually will turn on us and we will become its prisoner. Very first thing that God says, really the only thing that God says to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, he says, sin, Cain, it desires to have you, but you must master it. You must be in charge, because if you're not in charge of your sin, your sin will become in charge of you. Now listen, some of you are struggling with sin, but you've confessed your sin to a trusted friend, like the scriptures exhort us to do, and you're doing your best to subject it by repentance. That's well and good. I'm not really talking to you this morning. You're not who I think this word is for. There are some of you here this morning, though, who are still defending and protecting your sin. And that's who I'm talking to this morning. This is a specific word for, for a specific someone or someones here this morning. And you know who you are because even as I say this is a specific word for someone, you can feel the conviction growing in you as I speak. Perhaps it's a turn of the stomach. Perhaps it's a tightening of the, of the collar, as it were. You've been trying to run the race of faith but your sin is wrapped all around your legs. It is, as the author says here in verse 2, it is clinging so closely. If you're not making any progress and it troubles you, perhaps you're not making any progress and it even grieves you. But even though it grieves you, you still prefer your sin more than you prefer the things of faith. Perhaps your sin is public knowledge and everyone around you would be able to name your sin. Perhaps your sin is known only to God and you've hidden it from the people that matter most to you. The author doesn't seem to have any particular sin in mind. We each have our own temptations. We have our own proclivities to sin. But if you have unconfessed, unrepented sin still clinging to you, it's time to cut it loose. When life around you is giving way, when the ship is going down, that is not the time to cling to your sin. There is no time to cling to your sin, really. There's no good time to cling to your sin. But when you are being led out into the Colosseum to face the lions, that is the time when you need every strength of your faith and you need to lay aside and repent of that sin. So let me say to you then, if I was speaking to you, if the Lord, more importantly, was speaking to you in this point, don't let this moment pass. Turn your face to Jesus in honest repentance and purpose in your heart right now, right where you're sitting, wherever you are, purpose in your heart right now who you are going to talk to and when you are going to talk to them. 
Because if you've got sin that you've been carrying around that you need to get off your chest, it's not probably going to just be between you confessing it to God. Sometimes we just confess to God because it's easy. That's literally like confessing to no one. If you want to confess to God, confess it to, to a brother or sister in Christ. Right? And think about that. Who are you going to confess to? And when are you going to confess it to them? Clarify in your mind what steps you are going to take this afternoon to break free. Don't just let the vague sense of conviction build with no clear direction about how you're going to resolve it. I know it can be scary to confess sin. I know it can be scary to, to bring sin out from the darkness into the light. Let me say to you, don't be afraid. God will be with you in that. He's not calling you to repentance in order to ruin you. He's not asking this sin to be brought out into the light so that you can be ruined. He's asking this sin to be brought out into the light so that he can save you and strengthen your faith. So cast off the unnecessary weight, repent of sin, and then finally hear if the storm is all around you and you're you're struggling, then move to this third step. I think it's the key step. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Look in verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God the Father saved Jesus' life numerous times, numerous occasions as he was growing up. Uh, if you remember your uh, gospel accounts in the Christmas story, uh, Jesus' uh, life was in jeopardy right from the moment he was born. And a, an angel came to Joseph and warned Joseph of Jesus' jeopardy and had Joseph take him and Mary down into Egypt to hide from Herod's wrath. And then when Joseph thought it might be safe to come back into the land of Israel, he brought Jesus and Mary back. But but in doing so, he was warned again in a dream to not go back in and around Judea or Jerusalem, but to escape up into Galilee and to continue hiding. There was one point two, and later in Jesus' life in um, <clears throat> Luke chapter 4, when Jesus has just preached to a crowd and they've taken offense at what he's had to say, and they lay hold of him, and in anger, they drag him out of the city and they take him to the, to the brow of a cliff and they're going to throw him off and kill him. And Luke tells us rather mysteriously, frankly, that Jesus, but Jesus walked out from among them. So you wonder, how did he do that, right? What kind of Jedi mind trick? You do not want to throw me off this cliff, you know? <laughs> we do not want to throw you off this cliff. I don't know what he did there, but, but God was watching out in Jesus' life because not only was it human powers and authorities that were set against Jesus, but even more deeply, there were angelic forces, wicked angelic forces that were set against Jesus. And so God was protecting Jesus' life all throughout. But then we come to the events of Holy Week when God and his delivering power receded into the background. Jesus is taken to trial. He's arrested. Right? He's taken to trial. He's convicted falsely, unjustly, and then he is tortured and killed on the cross. How do we explain the defeat of Jesus, the most righteous of all men, the most loving, the most kind, the most devoted to God and the well-being of others. This has been a question that really has uh, plagued much of New Testament scholarship. How do we explain Jesus' defeat? 
Albert Schweitzer was a New Testament scholar from the mid-1900s to the mid-2000s. And um, he, he did not, he believed much of Jesus' account, except that Jesus rose from the dead. He believed Jesus came as a man who believed himself to be the Messiah. He preached about God's coming kingdom, believed that God's coming kingdom uh, was going to indeed come, that he moved forward in faith, but in the end, died, crushed, and his dream did not come true. Listen to what Albert Schweitzer says about Jesus. He references John the Baptist. John the Baptist appears and cries out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Soon after comes Jesus, and in the knowledge that he is the coming son of man, lays hold of the wheel of the world to set it moving on that last revolution, which is to bring all ordinary history to a close. It refuses to turn, and he throws himself upon it. Then it does turn and crushes him. Instead of bringing in the eschatological conditions, he has destroyed them. The wheels roll onward, and the mangled body of the one immeasurable great man who was strong enough to think of himself as the spiritual ruler of mankind and to bend history to his purpose is hanging upon it still. And that was Schweitzer's vision of the man Jesus. Jesus came, he was faithful to God, he followed God's law, he believed the scriptures, he set about to bring in the kingdom of God, but in the end was a failed visionary. That's the faithless account of Jesus' life. For Schweitzer and many who have followed him, Jesus was a man who reached for the golden ring, but missing the ring, fell on his face in defeat and failure. But what a different picture of Jesus we have from the scriptures when we believe the gospel stories about the empty tomb, when we accept the word of Jesus' followers about his after-death appearances, when we take on faith what Paul says of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Listen, if, if Jesus' story ended in the way that Schweitzer claimed, then what hope do any of us have? If God would not step in and deliver Jesus, the most just of all men, then who will he vindicate? Or perhaps even deeper, if God won't vindicate Jesus' life, then there probably isn't a God at all. And if there is no God, why are we bothering dragging ourselves out of bed every Sunday morning to be here? But God did raise Jesus from the dead. He is not still hanging on the cross, crushed and lifeless upon the slowly turning wheel of a dying world. The truth of Jesus' resurrection is the final answer, the ultimate answer for how we are to endure our defeat. We endure our defeat in the same way that Jesus endured his defeat, in faith, in God's future vindication and resurrection. We endure defeat by remembering that everything God has done for Jesus, he will do for us. It's the message of baptism that we saw so wonderfully expressed this morning. When we gather together as pastors with those that are coming forward for baptism, we will sit and talk with them. 
And one of the things that we say to those that are coming forward for baptism is that baptism is a reminder. Right out of Romans chapter 6, you can read it in chapter 6 of Romans. Baptism is a reminder that everything that God has done for Jesus, he will do for you. And you can think back to your baptism as a reminder that God's promise in your life is sure. We will at times be defeated. Yes, that's true. Just as Jesus was defeated. But the hope of the gospel is that we will not stay defeated, that our life will not end in defeat. You may have given up your hope for victory in this mortal life in the here and now. It may be the case that the marriage can't be saved. The child's not going to come back to the Lord. That the health crisis isn't going to pass. That the job isn't going to come back. You may have given up hope for victory in this life, but don't give up your hope for victory in the life to come. Let us follow the admonition that the author gives us in 12.3. To consider him, to consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Let's think about him so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted in the midst of our own crosses that we carry. Jesus has gone before us, so let us fix our eyes like Jesus on the joy that is set before us, giving a stiff arm to the shame and to the reproach of the defeats of this world, and persevere onward until we are seated with Jesus, the throne of God. Amen? God, we thank you that Jesus' life didn't end with him crushed and mangled on the rolling wheel of history, a failed visionary, a failed martyr, but that his life was marked ultimately by the victory of resurrection, that when death collided with your power, death had to give way. God, we thank you for Jesus' example of enduring in the midst of defeat, enduring in the midst of suffering, enduring in the midst of persecution and mockery. We thank you for his example, Lord, not just of his faithfulness, but also of his ultimate victory on the other side of his defeat. Lord, I pray for those that are here this morning who needed that special word, I pray that you would remind them, Lord, that in the midst of defeat, in the midst of our ashes, that we rise ultimately like the phoenix, Lord, to new life. Maybe it doesn't happen in the ways that we want it to happen in the here and now, but it does happen in the ways that you've destined for us and that all that has happened to Christ will happen to us. And Lord, I pray, uh, especially for maybe someone here today, Lord, who needs to repent of their sin. And they know it in their heart. They've been burdened by it. They've felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would move the conviction to action. That you would take them beyond just an unsettled sense of conviction to a settled plan to make things right between themselves and you. And God, may you strengthen their faith in the midst of that. Even if you don't completely resolve the circumstances, may you strengthen their faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you. You've not left us to ourselves, that you've given us Jesus. He is our great hope when the world around us gives way. May we cling to him and keep our eyes fixed on him. It's in his name we pray.
Amen.